Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bridgetown Podcast. John Mark Comer here from Bridgetown Church. This is also the Van City Podcast. I'm sitting next to the one and only Josh Porter. If you don't know Josh, um, he's a church planter that we had the privilege to plant you, what, a year and some change ago? A year and some change, yeah. Yeah, in downtown Vancouver, right over the river from Portland, Oregon. And as you can imagine, you are not hearing a teaching from a Sunday at Van City or Bridgetown. We're actually sitting in the basement of FBC on a, what day is today? Tuesday morning. And we are here doing a podcast. If you've been tracking with our podcast, you know that we are teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And right now, we are at the end of chapter five. So in chapter five, Jesus lays out six examples of his way of life, his kind of way to read the Torah. And three of the six have to do with nonviolence, in particular at the last two. And so we're done now teaching through the end of Matthew 5 and what Jesus has to say about nonviolence and enemy love, but it just raises so many questions. So rather than do, you know, two months of Sunday teachings on this subject, we thought, hey, let's sit down with a few experts on this idea and do a Q&A, or as our good friends at the Bible Project, Tim and John, call it a, a Q&R, <laughs> kind of clever question and response, because we don't have all the answers and neither do our guests as brilliant and uh, well thought out as they are. So we, at the top of the list, Preston, you're, you're there at the top of the list of theologians <laughs> and teachers and writers. Congratulations. On, yeah, this subject, maybe we just don't read a lot, but um, <laughs> is Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who's here. Hello, Preston. Good morning. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. You're here awesome. from Boise, Idaho. And That's right, I'm yeah. just shocked they even have cell service there. So. I know, yeah, we just got it in last week. So I just imagine <laughs> I imagine you like out on a horse somewhere with a, a, a mountain <laughs> behind you. Something yeah, like that. Something like that. So if you don't know Preston and his work, he is a professor, PhD from Aberdeen in Scotland, and uh, currently you are the president for the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Um, which is a new yep. development, right, in your story? Yeah. Based off of your most recent book, People to be Loved, which is a biblical theology of sexuality, in particular dealing with the LGBTQ question. Um, a lot of people think I know you best for the book that you co-authored with Francis Chan uh, by the name of Erasing Hell, which is a great read. But by far, we love all that you do. But our favorite thing by far is your book, Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, which, in my opinion, is the best resource that we know of on a biblical theology of nonviolence. It's like our go-to read. So, Preston, I don't know if I said this to you, but we do reading clubs in the summer, and right now we have about 40-something yeah. people reading through Fight. They are jokingly calling it Fight Club, which I think <laughs> is missing the point a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> Chuck Kalanick, he's a Portland author, so that's like one of our Portland exports. That's how we get him in there. That's how we get him in there. So we have a number of people reading through your book right now, and that is like our go-to all-in-one place. Like if you want to really take seriously what Jesus and the writers of the Bible have to say about violence and enemy love, here's a great starting place. And uh, there's a couple of things we love about it, love about you. One thing I love about Fight Preston is I I reread it last week for, I don't know, third or fourth time. And it, I think, has more Bible in it than any other book I've ever read. Like every <laughs> every page is like you really only wrote about half the book, and God and His helpers wrote the rest. Um, secondly, I love that it's really a biblical theology. I love that method, but from Genesis to the end. So usually, when you hear a case for nonviolence, 
it starts uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 with Jesus or maybe with some like emotionally loaded story from a war or whatever. But you actually start in Genesis, which is a bizarre place at first, but it makes sense once you get into it. And actually my favorite, the most fascinating part of the book for me was all your work on violence in the Old Testament and your reading of the Old Testament as more, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it seems like you're reading it as more of a critique of what you call nationalistic militarism than yeah. an endorsement of it. And I just, man, I thought that was so fun. It's obviously tons of questions about the Old Testament, but so fun. And the other thing I love about you before we unleash you is, and don't take this in the wrong way, but <laughs> y- you, you don't exactly fit the stereotype of a pacifist. And I know <laughs> you hate that label and and we shy away from it as well for all sorts of reasons. But so if you don't know Preston, like you don't see him right now. He's like this kind of I don't know how to describe Preston. He's like a good-looking, smart <laughs> smart bro. Is that is that mean? Is that like a compliment? I don't know, but like you live in Idaho. You're you enough said, right? You you own guns by your own admission. You just don't kill people with them. You like you look like you work out a lot. Maybe you're just blessed with genetics. I'm not sure, but you don't fit the stereotype of you know like Josh over here. He's a pacifist and he's like a lead singer in a punk rock band. And well, I'm a stereotype. I, you, you break I, the mold, Preston. I ride my bicycle to work. And we both like, eat a plant based diet, and you know we're we're from Portland. It's a little bit more okay, whatever. But you and I think that gives you a lot of credibility. And you just follow Jesus, and you take the Bible really seriously. So, all that to say, welcome to the show, show, wow. podcast. Uh, We're happy you're like here. That's like the best, most interesting introduction I think I've ever heard. <laughs> this is not I how people know. introduce you at parties. <laughs> yeah, here's a sm- here's a smart bro. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. And uh, I think I said in the book, most people, most pacifists are pacifists because they couldn't win a fight anyway. You know, which, <laughs> oh, which is kind of a bad uh, starting. I point. can't say that, but you can. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And I guess I could just start off, yeah, where you left off there. And um, yeah, in many ways, um, I'm not at all a candidate for this, um, the the position that I hold regarding nonviolence. And and also, by the way, I I do prefer the term Christocentric nonviolence rather than pacifist. And we can get into that a little later, but I do think there's an important distinction there. But I, you know, I have... Most people, Christians included, arrive at a nonviolent position because they were raised in a tradition where violence was sort of shunned. Maybe they were in a denomination like a Mennonite or a Quaker background or something where right. nonviolence was kind of in the air, if you will. Um, or they may have like an allergic revulsion to violence. They watch a violent movie and they're like, oh, I just, yeah. this is just disgusting and they hate it. None of that is true for me. I was raised in a, in fact, I was raised in the opposite environment where, you know, somebody claimed to be a Christian and a pacifist, I saw that as a contradiction in terms. Wow. You know, like pacifism was on par with being pro-abortion, being a communist, being a pansy, being an atheist, like all the, like those all, they all kind of come together like that, that, that just rolled into one. So it took years for me to even cultivate a category where somebody could be a Christ follower and renounce violence. Like that, that to me was categorically impossible for many years. So, you know, I think I, I may have even said in the book, 
um, that I, you know, I was almost surprised at my conclusion. <laughs> I was one of the most surprised people at my very conclusion. Like I was not right. expecting to kind of land where I did. But and how did that happen? Time, I mean, how did you move from kind of well, yeah. position of origin to where you're at now? So I don't mean this in a condescending or snarky way. I really don't. But the only reason that I would embrace, emphatically embrace a position of Christocentric nonviolence is because I believe the Bible teaches it. And I, um, you know, it, it, it really was my conservative environment that, that drummed into me a passion for the Bible. If God breathed stars into existence and he also breathed out his word, then we must, we have to go where the text leads, even if it leads us away from traditionally held views. Um, I love, you know, listening to this, or not listening to it, but reading the speech of Martin Luther, you know, on the when he was being condemned, and he, here is where I stand, I can do no other, I must go where the Word of God leads me to go, I can do no other, and that spirit right. was driven into my bones from an early age, or at least early age of my Christian walk, and, and it really is that spirit that drove me to embrace the position I do, and, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, it would be arrogant for me to say that only nonviolent advocates are true biblical Christians. Um, right. I know, you know, in fact, most <laughs> evangelicals who lo- also love the scriptures would yeah, not land not. on the position I do. However, I can say for myself that it was through rigorous ongoing study of n- not just verses, but as you said earlier, how the whole story of God hangs together. It was through a rigorous and submissive study of that story and, and of individual texts that led me to the position I hold. To rethink. Yeah, I mean, you make the point in the book that uh, when I read it, because I grew up in, I think, a somewhat similar tradition than you, not reform, but that same kind of evangelical conservative world. Yeah. I, uh, you make the point that you just never really thought about it. You just kind of always assumed that violence was an option for followers right. of Jesus. And I think that ra- that rang true with me. It was honestly, it was right. not something I thought about. There was never really an open question to it. It was just kind of, well, you know, there's violence in the Old Testament. And King David was a warrior and a yeah. man after God's own heart. And killing is not the same thing as murder. And maybe if somebody's right. like extra credit, there's something about Romans 13, you know. But it wasn't really, <laughs> wasn't really thought about, at least in my experience. You know, it's fascinating. People ask me, what's the best sort of counter perspective that yeah. follows your same study I, that does a biblical theology. Right. I said, honestly, I've never seen one. Yes. I, I, I asked se- you that question. <laughs> I have been looking for years for like a great book that is a biblical theology yeah. of even just war theory, much less, yeah. you know, yeah. the support of nationalism. or military. I can't find one. It doesn't, ex- I mean, honestly, it doesn't exist. Like people simply come to the text assuming that you can kill people if they're trying to harm your family or if you're serving in the military, that must be okay. I mean, we go to the text with these narratives firmly in place, and then all we need to do is, you know, quote some verses from the Old Testament, dismiss a few from the New, <laughs> and, and, and bada-bing, bada-boom, and you kind of, you know, reaffirm your position. But I think people don't even realize that they actually have to do a biblical theology to defend the position that violence is the Christian way in right. some cases which and, which may may exist we just you and i have yet to sure find a yeah. book on it or a, whatever <laughs> that doesn't mean it, it's not out there but um right. if you're listening and you know of one please send it our way yes i would love to see it <laughs> so i just on that note i mean i love your humility that this is this is a conviction like you mm-hmm. if i if i read you right you believe that the teachings of jesus lead you as a follower of jesus to not participate in violence, but rather to look for creative, nonviolent solutions to fight evil and to love your enemy. Um, but this is, 
in the Western and in particular in the Protestant and Catholic and especially in the evangelical tradition, this is a minority position. So um, most Christians, most evangelicals, most Protestants, most Catholics, most followers of Jesus in the West don't, uh, either because they've not thought about it or because they have and they don't line up with it, it's a minority position. So just has it always, give us a little church history. Sure. Has it always been this way? Has it always been a minority position? What was, the, what did the early church have to say on the subject? Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly from Augustine, you know, fourth to century onward, it's been the dominant position of the church, although not, not by any means, you know, exclusive. But what's fascinating is prior to Augustine, you take the first 300 years of Christianity, and this, these questions revolving around violence and killing, th- these were, this was a hot issue. This was yeah. something Christians actually thought through, and there's a lot of material on Because people weren't living like in the suburb of, you know, <laughs> Yeah, Atlanta the cornfields of Indiana. <laughs> yeah, like it wasn't, it was a dangerous, violent yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you had, and you had people getting converted out of the Roman military. You had, you know, a people faced with the option to confront evil with violence, and so it was a really live question. What is fascinating? One of the most fascinating points that I discovered in my research is that early church leaders prior to Augustine were, as far as we can tell, unanimous in their view that Christians should never ever take the life of another human being, and they even talked about you know, good killing versus bad killing or legal killing versus non-legal killing, you know, killing in self-defense or whatever it is. They even made those distinctions, but still concluded that categorically Christians who claim to follow Jesus should never take the life of another human. Now, what is so fascinating about that, what I would as far as we can tell, this this uh, unanimous position is that the early church wasn't unanimous on anything. Like they, yeah. they couldn't even agree on they couldn't agree on whether Christ was God or man or how that worked out. They were still hammering out the Trinity. They couldn't even agree on what books belong in the Bible. <laughs> but when it came to whether or not a Christian should take the life of somebody else, it was, it was like one there of the was few things was no that debate. they were unanimous on. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, again, just several names that people may recognize: Origen, Tertullian. Uh, Cyprian, Athenagoras, Lactatinus, and Arnobius, and many others that addressed the question, they were, they did not, there was no real, like, option B here. Like, they were all committed to a nonviolent perspective until you see um, the quote-unquote conversion of Constantine, which I think is a very important Yeah, talk um, to us about transition. that, because that's, that's a turning point. Yeah, it is, you know, um, so you have, you know, prior to the conversion of Constantine, which what was about 312 AD, you know, prior to that, Christianity was the persecuted minority. But throughout the, you know, just prior to Constantine, Christianity began to grow. What's fascinating yeah. is, that the, is that the more that the church was persecuted and killed and attacked, the more it grew. And did not attack you know, in kind. Exactly. I mean, it was it was a... <laughs> it was committed to a nonviolent perspective that yeah. caused the kingdom to grow, but then Constantine sees that. Yeah, what's, what's the story about, there for somebody who's never read that? Give us the quick sure. myopic. So Const- of Constantine is sure he's you know the Roman Empire is you know the you know still in charge of the, the known world at that point. 
Constantine is the emperor, but he sees that, you know, there's all these Christians running around now, so it may be politically expedient for him to be a Christian. So he yeah. has this because he has a problem. Unquote, I've read a number of people say that, like, it, that was right about when about half of the empire was in yes. some way, shape, or form Christian or Christianized, and yes. now you have a problem because the persecuted minority is potentially a majority, right. and you're a politician, you have an issue on your hands. And I mean, think about that. To go from a position of powerlessness to a position of power almost overnight, that, you know, for some people, they're like, yes, we're not persecuting anymore. We're, you know, now we're in a position of power. Yes, but if you think as about, you would imagine. You would think that, but man, that, that is not, it's not a good place when the, the church is, you know, intertwined with government power. Like that just never goes well. And that's exactly what happened in the wake of Constantine, you, you know, you have pagan priests being made pagan, you know, pastors overnight, and there's no real conversion there, and leaders right. are now, you know, Christian in name. And, and and Constantine, for obvious reasons, was pro-war. Like, even his, quote, conversion, which I'd love to hear where you stand. I mean, I know there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not he even was a Christian, or whether right. or not it was a political power play, you know, because so many people in his empire we're now following Jesus, but I mean, the conversion stories, he's in battle, right? And he has a vision of a Roman <laughs> yeah. legion and a banner with, I don't know, the cross on it or Christ on it. And yeah. if you fight in the name of Christ, you will win. And he, and he does it and they win. And he claims, well, that was, that's Christ, right? So like right. even his yeah. conversion to following a nonviolent enemy loving, you know, dying on the cross right. Messiah is through a battle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He used that conversion to sort of bolster his military strength, which you, you don't have to be a, a pacifist or an advocate of nonviolent to see that that, you know, might be a little twisted. But right. Um, but, so in the way in the wake of that, you have people like Augustine and others who are now the leading Christian thinkers in a time when the church is completely in bed with the state. They're in a position of power. It, you know, church and state are, are blended together as one. So now to protect the state. You know, nonviolence doesn't really work very well when you're trying For the to rule the world against Bob Berry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is a great question. I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, on Sunday, in a hypothetical scenario, what if yeah. every single person in America became a Christian? And I was like, well, I, I don't. Call me skeptical, but I don't, I don't think we're on track for what that. A pessimist. But I mean, her point was, and she's a smart thinking woman, you know, what, well, does this would not work for America at that point? And I, I think she's right. And I think that was the issue that Augustine and other theologians were wrestling with, right? How do you, yeah. when now the empire is Christian and the emperor is quote unquote Christian, it's an empire. Right. It has to make war just to survive. So totally. yeah. how, how do we reconcile that with the way of Jesus? Yeah, you know, Augustine, he really wrestled, wrestled with that. And, you know, he just kind of said, well, times have changed. You know, Jesus' nonviolent teaching just can't. He, he even would affirm Jesus' nonviolent teaching. In fact, Augustine, the, the, who kind of was one of the main architects for just for theory, we can talk about that in a second, you know, he did it out of not because he thought that was what the Bible's teaching, but because the biblical teaching simply cannot be applied in our situation in terms of government authority, so we got to figure something else out. But even Augustine said, when it comes to killing in terms of self-defense, Christians should never kill in self-defense. Wow. Like, so his argument and, wasn't, you know, we're misreading Jesus. He's not actually teaching nonviolence and enemy love. His argument was, no, that's what he is teaching, but it doesn't work now for the empire. Is that, is that your interpretation? Pretty much, of yeah. Pretty much, yeah. At least that's what kind of launched him into it, into you know, exploring just war theory and seeing if it can kind of fit, but. Yeah, I think even he had a deep appreciation, a much 
deeper appreciation for the nonviolent teaching of Jesus than many people do today. Okay, so talk to us about just war theory, because I think people hear that and and even often cite it, but don't actually know what it is. So what is it? Where yeah. did it come from? Uh, what was Augustine's relationship to it? Yeah, so just war theory, um, well, first of all, just war theory does not come from the Bible, okay? There's not, you can't find just war theory, in the, even in the Old Testament. Uh, you definitely don't find it in the New Testament. You don't even find it in early Christian teaching. It comes from, you know, kind of, it, the, the roots of it go back to like Aristotle and, and um, Cicero and, and right. other Greek secular philosophy. thinkers. Yeah. yeah, totally. Just kind of, to kind of figure out what are some criteria that we can uh, apply to wage war that is, that is a just war, not an evil war. Um, and, and, you know, because even back then you had moral philosophers and thinkers that, right. you know, they were promoting. Yeah, Greek philosophers had a high value for morality. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there were, but then, but then, you know, they would recognize that war is inevitable. So how can we, you know, the, the, the main heart behind just war theory is not to wage war, it's to reduce the evil effects right. um, in war. And in fact, here's what I love about just war theory. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, just war theory is like one sneeze away from nonviolence. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's good to hear. I don't, think, I don't think most people realize that. They're actually no. really close. Yeah. I mean, just war theory says that war is so evil, so bad, so destructive, so horrific that it should only be pursued as an absolute last option. Well, I'm almost, I mean, I'm, that sounds really beautiful to me, and, and I just wish people would apply that. I mean, in, in our day and age, especially in America, that's usually not the spirit. Usually the spirit is, you know, if, if there's a terrorist attack, you know, we race to, you know, blow up the terrorist or whatever, and we just think that violence is not a last option, but it's really a first option to confront evil. So I think we've actually in practice have come a long way away from trying to figure out what, you know, how can we avoid war at all costs? So just war theory isn't just a generic idea. There actually are seven criteria. Am I right? Do you want to lay those yeah, out really fast? Sure. Yeah. There's, there's seven or eight, depending on how you measure it. So yeah, just briefly, um, the seven criteria are uh, just cause. Um, you, you can't uh, just want to expand your empire and wage war and take over another country. That's not a that's not a just cause. You know, you need to have a, a righteous cause to go to war. Number two, there needs to be the right authority. You need to have, you know, you need to be like a, a, a governing authority to be able to make decision to go to war. Number three, right intention, which is kind of like just cause. You have to have the right sort of motivation. Again, not just to expand your your you know, uh, oil fields or something like that. Right. So it has to, to be, be self-defense or an ally nation is invaded yeah. by whatever. Con- confronting, confronting evil or ally. Yeah. Uh, self-defense, something like that. Number four is a kind of a weird one to me, but reasonable chance of success, which kind of raises the question, how do you define success? But in any case, um, you have to have a, you know, um, you have to have a good likelihood that you're actually going to win the war, according to the theory. Number five, which I love, is last resort. All nonviolent avenues of achieving achieving peace must be exhausted before a nation resorts to war. Number six, proportionate means, uh, meaning that you can't, um, I don't know, to, to give a kind of stupid, crass illustration, you know, if, if one bomb, bomb would do the trick, don't drop 10, you know? Right. Um, or nu- nuclear off. warfare is a great example. Nuclear warfare, by definition, violates just war theory, probably in almost every 
in every one of these seven criteria. Yeah. Um, a, a number of ethicists even argue that any war in the modern world does because of the way that technology has so reshaped warfare. Yeah. Right? Well, and that's a great point, too, because Just War Theory was developed far before... Yeah, when you had a sword, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then the last one, the seventh one, I think is, again, one of the most important, is non-combatant immunity. In other words, you can't target civilian populations. Nagasaki or Dresden or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) those are some good examples there. Yeah, so you can't drop an atomic bomb on a city filled with civilians, even if you think that that might um, help end the war, which, you know, what's interesting. I mean, World War II was hailed as the good war. People yeah. called the good war. It was, you know, we're taking out the bad guys. But The line of demarcation were, between good and evil was probably, I read one historian say, most likely clearer in that war than any other war in human history. Which, if that's the case, then that is absolutely insane. We killed, I mean, thou- no, we killed millions targeted right. millions of civilians in fact you mentioned dresden a lot of people dresden, don't know yeah. about dresden it's full-on genocide they, in that two to three day bombing campaign of an innocent city it was the greatest massacre in human history since genghis khan right Twenty-five thousand people right civilians in, in a two yeah in a two or three day span like that's like unparalleled so if that's the if that's if that's the best we can do then in the words of a just war theorist, Oliver O'Donovan, history knows of no just no wars. Just wars. Like, we, we, this isn't something but, we but can you, kind of slap on a war and say, that was a good war and this is a bad war. That's not at all possible. But your point is World War II is essentially the closest we ever – I think World War II is fascinating because of how it's shaped our life and it's still mm-hmm. in somewhat recent memory. And I think it shaped a whole generation's view of war around the kind of good, evil, good guys, bad sure. guys, binary thing. Yeah. Um, But it was the closest we ever came to a just war in that most of our reasons for going to war did meet the criteria, right? Right. But the way we went about the war, whether it is uh, carpet bombing of civilians or Dresden in Germany or Mm -hmm. Nagasaki, Hiroshima, these, like, we're disqualified. We did not make um, the criteria for the rest of it. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So is there any American war in our history that does meet all of the criteria for just war theory? uh, No, absolutely not. And and to be uh, to be fair, though, an honest just war theorist would say, well, that's not the the, the criteria. Yeah, the criteria is not to sort of uh, be the fight, like to determine what war is just, what's not. It's trying to reduce. It's trying to give us guidelines yeah. to try to reduce the evil of war. Avoid it, say, if at all possible, make it more yeah. moral, so on. But Preston, right. you know, it, it's interesting to me, you described uh, Augustine's development of just war theory as something that was based more on a sort of pragmatic approach to the times, um, and it's not necessarily, or in this case, not at all, an adaptation of the scriptures or the teachings of Jesus. Um, in contemporary conversations, folks who are a bit reticent about nonviolence tend to immediately uh, assume that they must be just war theorists if they're put off by the idea of nonviolence. And then their arguments, um, at least in my narrow experience, tend to be uh, logical arguments. They're not scriptural, scriptural arguments. They're common right. sense logic. Yeah, pragmatic kind of. Right. And if sure. uh, what you're saying is accurate, it it's actually sounds like there's a bit of solidarity they have with Augustine in that uh, Augustine was doing some comments. He was a, it was a very philosophical line of reasoning rather than one sure. taken from the scriptures, which is, is often the case with folks now who are a bit apprehensive about nonviolence. Well, that, that's a great point, and that's usually what I'm faced with when I get in 
two conversations on this topic. People begin with, you know, well, I'm not going to let somebody, you know, come in and kill all my kids, you know, gun them down. I'm going to use violence to defend my family. And, right. and what about Romans 13? Or, you know, what about person civil servant in the military? They're, you know, my uncle Fred is a good man and he sacrificed his life for your right to be a nonviolent, you know, all these arguments. Yeah, right. But none, none of these are really beginning with Scripture. Now, yeah. call me a fundamentalist, but I, I still have a great love for the Bible, and I'm like, we have yeah. to begin with the Bible to develop a biblical theology or an ethic of violence versus nonviolence and then go to those situations. But in my experience, and it sounds like in yours as well, people usually begin with the pragmatic situation right. and then go back and find a few verses yeah. to make sure they can kind of justify it, which I just think that's completely, completely backwards. And naturally, really. we make a lot of assumptions that I'm not sure are right, such as, you know, the assumption that Jesus wants me to live a safe and secure middle class. Sure. American life, right. which I want that, and I live that, and I'm grateful for it, but I, I'm not sure that is an assumption for an apprentice of Jesus. Right, absolutely. So your, point, you know, your point is, even if just war theory or full-on militarism is right, you have to, as a disciple of Jesus, you have to get there first by some kind of another reading of Matthew 5, Romans 12, 13, 1 Peter 3, Hebrews, the narrative arc of the New Testament, the life example of Jesus, the cross, early church history— if yeah. we're reading that wrong, the first place you have to have another reading or another interpretation. Am I right? Absolutely. And again, I, I um, in my experience, I have not seen people who kind of push back on a nonviolent um, perspective that, that they've actually developed that kind of. I, I love the phrase, the narrative arc of the Bible, in particular the New Testament. Um, and, but as again, as Bible believing Christians, we have to let the Bible dictate our views, not not vice versa. So what you're saying, what you're saying is that just war theory is actually a close, I don't know, cousin, if that's the right word, yeah. to nonviolence. It has a similar heart yeah. posture. I and would say that, yes, the spirit driving just war theory is the same spirit driving, driving nonviolence. Right. They, they, are, they are driving at the same thing. They both believe that war and violence is evil. The only question is... Is it sometimes necessary as an absolute last resort after nonviolent means have been right. pursued? And I'm going to say that that spirit that should be driving just war theory, and, and it is, is not is not the spirit that is um, that we see all across the American evangelical church. I remember doing some study a while back on just militarism in America. Like we we are. And and not not I'm not saying having a military. I'm saying yeah, militarism going above and be militarism, and that that's that's a it's a really important distinction. We are one of, if not the most militaristic um, countries that the world has ever seen. And people and so one historian, Andrew Bosovich, he's he's done a lot of research on militarism in America. He says, were not for the support offered by several tens of millions of evangelicals, militarism in this country becomes inconceivable. That, that so here's the thing. If you want to advocate for a true just war theory, you want to say violence can be used as a last resort, or if someone's breaking in my home, going to kill my kids, I'm going to use violence, not because I want to, but it's the last resort. Right. If that's really the extent of, of violence in the evangelical church, then I'm fine with that. I, I would disagree on even some of that. But the primary problem is not that we're, 
we will use violence as an absolute last resort on an individual level. Our primary problem in evangelical church is that we are so profoundly militaristic, and one of the primary reasons why this nation is incredibly militaristic. Preston, can you def- uh, unpack that term militarism a little bit, especially in how it contrasts with uh, a, a true just war ethic? Yeah, and, and you use the <laughs> yeah. language of nationalistic militarism, and nationalism sure. means different things to different people. What do you mean yes, by that? Yeah, 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 good, good, good question. So um, militarism has to do with, um, put, I mean, there's different ways people define it, but putting a lot of stock, energy, money, and faith in military power as the means of preserving your country and confronting evil. Um, like, like you're, you're, you're not just having a military, most countries have a military, but you're actually going to see the military power as the, you know, the, the number one thing you need to keep people safe, to advance your cause or to protect your country. Yeah. You're going to spend an exorbitant amount of money in, in, in making it the strongest thing possible. You're going to flex your military muscles to scare off people. And so that's, again, that's not, not every country that has a military is militaristic in that sense. But again, this, and this isn't really, this is just an observation, not an argument. Nobody would disagree with this, that, that the America's military is so far off the chart um, than any other military that the world has ever seen. I mean, again, going back to the Roman Empire or Genghis Khan or whatever, like we right. put more faith, energy, uh, attention, and money in our military strength than, than anyone else by far. And that historian um, you cited um, and a number of others make the point, this would never happen without the support of evangelical Christians. Yes, yes, absolutely. It goes back to sort of the late 70s, early 80s, when the so-called moral majority and Republican Party and, and you know, conservative Christianity was all blended together, blended together. And they were fighting, they were fighting the evils of communism and pacifists, you know, it was kind of yeah. the, the you narrative know, that I grew up with. And I think you did too. one of the things, and I've read, and I'd love to have you speak to this. You've read more than me on the history of kind of interpretation of violence, but I've read that there was a shift in the church even after World War II, even prior to the 70s, around the conservative church's view of violence, whereas before, definitely before World War I, it was much more skeptical of military violence and militarism. Then after World War II, there was a shift. And so one of the things that I chat to people about that is really disorienting to get your head around is this idea that nonviolence um, comes off as a culturally liberal position, meaning when you think of a pacifist, you think of a, I don't know, like a leftist or a communist or a hippie or a make love, not war, whatever. But it is the theologically conservative position, which is why some of like the uber conservative old school denominations, Anabaptists, Mennonite, Amish, brethren, they're all like uber conservative. You know, women still wear head coverings. We would say too legalistic, you know, too literal in the reading of the New Testament, but they are pretty much all nonviolent because that's what the Bible essentially says. Whereas what you're calling nationalistic militarism or just militarism is the culturally conservative position. So normally when you hear it, it's from the right on the sociopolitical spectrum and it's from more of a kind of Christian, you know, evangelical God and country kind of source. And I mean that to slam that where it is the actually the theologically liberal position by the true definition of liberalism as you take liberty with the Bible and the teachings of Jesus to make it line up more with your culture. Um, Would you agree with that kind of prognosis? But that's really weird for people to get their head around in my experience. 
Yeah, no, everything you said, gosh, that you said it better than I could. That's spot on. And, and I think it goes back to framing World War II as the good war. And then in the wake of World War II, you had the glorious era of the 50s, right. you know, where we're kind of basking in the blessings of having won yeah. the war, you know. And then that leads to protests in the 60s and 70s, where now people who are protesting wars are considered liberal and anti-patriotic and interrupting all the flourishing we had in the 1950s. And generally, the people protesting wars were also advocating for the sexual revolution and, and all yeah. kinds of things. So it's, it's really easy to Weird trace. things the, got lumped together. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, there is absolutely a cultural narrative going on there. You know, it's fascinating, and it's, it's really unique to America. I mean, you go around the world, and you talk to Christians, and nonviolence is more or less the default position. I remember speaking right. over in the UK last year, and, I, and churches always they kept wanting me to talk on controversial topics. And I said, okay, well, I'll talk about hell, I'll talk about LGBT stuff, and I'll talk about nonviolence. And they said, well, no, we want you to talk on controversial issues. You talk about nonviolence, and everybody's going to shrug their shoulders and say, well, yeah, of course. Like, do Christians disagree with this? You know, like, right. it wasn't even, you know, it'd be kind of weird for somebody to be kind of a Christian and not nonviolent in that culture. And, and for the most part around the globe, that's kind of the, the more default position. So it is really unique to the socio political narrative of, of the American Western world, of America in particular. Yeah. And even in the late, in the late 20s. Yeah, and I, hesita I hesitate to say this, but even to the kind of Anglo white culture, um, yeah. I think this is an area where people of color who follow Jesus have been way ahead of us in some really beautiful ways. Of course, Dr. Martin Luther King is the bright, shining example. Yeah. So, right, Desmond so, Tutu in South yeah, Africa. And exactly. And, of course, all the Coptic Christians in India and those living in Syria right. and through the Middle East, almost all of whom are nonviolent. So, um, right. you know, what, what I hear, I, I want to move to questions here in a minute, but what I hear all the time is people cite just war theory, and I, I think they don't normally actually know what the criteria are. It's more of a kind of vague idea. Maybe I'm wrong there. But they cite it as a reason for American militarism, for this or that war, for serving in the U.S. military. So talk me through that. So let's say, you know, hypothetical scenario, I'm an 18-year-old. I go to Bridgetown Church or whatever church and city or wherever in Idaho. I follow Jesus. I love the Bible. I read it every day. I believe <laughs> it. I have never really thought about this. And now I'm hearing these crazy, you know, liberals. Um, we're not liberals, but crazy, whatever, <laughs> vegan people in Portland saying, you know, hey, Jesus teaching has all sorts of implications, one of which uh, you can't kill people. You have, to, you have to love them, even if that comes at cost to you. So you're hearing that for the first time, but you are thinking about serving in the military. Right, right or wrong, like how does just war theory fit into that? Is that justification? Is it not? How, how would you process that if you were that 18-year-old, right. you know, mythic figure? Yeah, honestly, if, if an 18-year-old was even raising the question, willing to wrestle with it, I'd be an absolutely happy camper. I think that <laughs> – did I just say happy camper? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you showed your car. It's okay, man. You're in Idaho. You get a free pass. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I think that – you know, in most churches, no one even raises the question of this might be something you should wrestle with. It's just sort of assume that the most heroic thing you can do is go into the military and serve your country and, and, and kill the bad, bad guys. Um, so that would be fantastic if they wrestle with I think the number one thing to recognize, again, I said it earlier, but I want to emphasize it again, that, that the just war theory does not come from the Bible. If they, even if people say, well, no, that's, that's, that's the Old Testament 
that's what the Old Testament did, right? They, they sort of endorsed just for a theory. I mean, the, the Old Testament warfare strategy is, number one, reduce your number of combatants to a ridiculous number. Number two, pray and sing worship songs to God. And then number three, go into battle with outdated weapons and an outnumbered army so that when you win, if you're obedient to Yahweh— he gets all the credit and you don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if we actually sought to apply Old Testament war ethics to today, yeah. we would be, I mean, that, it just wouldn't. It'd be and ridiculous. only do it if you hear the audible voice of God saying, right. go and do it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, Preston, since you are, you know, kind of lapsing into the, uh, the different Old Testament and New Testament arguments for and against nonviolence. We actually had a number of questions that people texted in, and and some of them deal with, uh, you know, some specific, I think, uh, prevalent and uh, questions that come up all the time as soon as you broach the topic of nonviolence. Um, one of them was that someone asked uh, about two different motifs in the New Testament, uh, one being that Jesus uh, famously has an interaction with the Roman centurion, and it stands to reason his disciples did as well. And Jesus, in that famous interaction, does not say to either the servant, depending on the, uh, the biography, or to the centurion himself, anything about the Roman military. And then um, along those lines, later on in Paul's letters, he often favors uh, militaristic sounding metaphors to explain mm-hmm. the discipleship to Jesus. So I'm sure that those are things that have come up a lot in your conversations. What do you, what do you have to say to sure. those? Yeah, those are great questions. They do come up a lot and, and uh, not to punt, but I do, I do address those more, more thoroughly in the book. With the interaction with the Roman centurions um, and Roman soldiers as a whole, those, those interactions are never intended to give kind of a A to Z complete portrait of all the ethical expectations that this potential convert might need to think through. I mean, think about this way. Um, His interactions with the Roman centurion also never mentions paganism. But it's, it's well known that in the Roman military, you know, people called military commanders like virtual pagan priests like they would have sacrifices every day they'd be burning incense all kinds of gods i mean the paganism in particular in the military was just i mean pervasive and yet jesus never says anything about you know renouncing your belief in other gods or worship of zeus or whatever so i mean um those stories are never intended to say you know um to, to to sanctify staying in the military or not staying in the military or using violence or not using violence and in some of these characters that he's interacting with, I mean, um, there was relative relative peace in the first century, especially, um, well, I mean, he had some riots that happened later on, but I mean, you, you could, and this is, again, just what historians say, you could serve in the military and never be called upon to use violence. You know, it's not like they were just chopping people's heads off right and left all the time. Um, so it, it may not have been that pressing where he had to sort of you know, jump in and, and tell them, make sure you don't use violence, you know, may not have been as pressing as we think it uh, should have been. But I think the primary point is we can't read into those stories um, just, to, again, like, you know, that he's giving them the totality of the ethical demands that he's, you know, expecting of them in that short conversation. Yeah, totally. And then Paul, the, why in the world does Paul, a guy who, if we are to be believed, would have subscribed sure. to a nonviolent worldview, why does he like to throw around terms that seem like right. he's into military, meta- metaphorically speaking, military imagery? Yeah, well, he, you know, he does use his military images, um, but he, he guts them of all sort of 
actual violence. Like this is a metaphor, a, a way of conceiving of fighting against the enemy. And, you know, th- this is, I think, important for people to wrestle with is, and one of the reasons why I don't like the term pacifist is, man, I, I believe we absolutely should wage an aggressive uh, war against evil. My question is, what are the means by which we should be fighting evil? Not right. whether or not we should fight against evil. I want to know what are the Christian, Christ-centered means by which we fight against evil. So that's why Ryan named my book Fight. Like, I'm not saying don't fight. I'm saying fight, vigorously fight, fight aggressively. Um, but let's figure out how God wants us to fight. So, yeah, I'm not at all troubled by those metaphors because, again, those metaphors are gutted from all actual violent application all he's trying to do is use you know familiar terms familiar images to to encourage christians to fight against evil and and you know it, it it's, there's an interesting play on words throughout the book of revelation where you have uh one of the themes of revelation uh, is that jesus has conquered now the word conquer it's it's a key word in revelation and it's a greek word nikao yeah where we get where we get nike, nike from which is based yeah, in portland yeah it, it is a it, that word is infused with violent militaristic connotations. I mean, it was a very popular word in the Roman Empire. Rome conquered this nation, conquered that nation. But what's fascinating is that same word is used throughout Revelation to speak of a slaughtered lamb yeah. who conquered evil by dying, not by killing. I mean, that would have that would have caused any Shocking. Roman soldier to their head to spin, saying, "Wait, wait a minute, like." He conquered by dying? Like, that doesn't make any sense, but that is the heart of Christian ethics. It doesn't actually make cultural sense. So a lot of the uh, New Testament use of military symbolism or imagery, in a way, is actually kind of beautifully subversive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the very term Messiah or kingdom. I mean, all these are militaristic terms that Christ uses, but turns them on their head, for sure. Okay, here's another question. I know we're running out of time. Um, Quote, it seems that Matthew 5, that's Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we just went through it, is nearly exclusively dealing with personal things, anger, lust, oaths. Is Jesus breaking this to speak to the corporate, condemning military violence? Did the Jews even have a military at the time? That's a great question. It comes up quite a bit. I I don't, um, and this deals with deeper, maybe, um, misunderstandings of New Testament ethics. I, I don't, I know it's common to say, you know, personal ethics over here and corporate ethics over there. I, I don't know if Jesus would have had those distinctions. I think he just painted a vision for how humans are to follow their creator and to cultivate human flourishing and to follow the crucified lamb. I don't think he would have said, you know, well, on an individual level, do this, but if you're working for the government, then you can do this. Like, he didn't right. have that kind of... Uh, Separation of church and state system. was still about 1,500 years out. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't. I think, uh, does it apply to individuals? Yes. Does it apply to individuals working for a certain company? Yes. I mean, I don't think... For instance, I, I think Christians should love their enemies regardless of their occupation. I think Christians shouldn't commit adultery or lust regardless of the occupation. I can't imagine Jesus saying, well... On an individual level, you know, don't lust after your neighbor. But if you're, you know, working the beaches as a lifeguard at Malibu, you know, it just kind of comes yeah, with then the Then it's okay because you know? it's part of you're getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, a lawyer. Well, you know, certain, you know, jobs in the law field, you just got to do some shady stuff. And that's just demanded by your occupation. So don't really follow, you know, this individual teaching in that occupation. Like, but we do this. We, a lot of people often use that same logic saying, yeah, well, yeah it's good for Christians not to kill. But if you're serving your country in the military, then 
that doesn't apply to you. I just think Jesus would be rubbing his eyes at that kind of separate ethical system. Yeah. You know, um, Dale Bruner, which is, as you know, is one of the top scholars on Matthew in the world. And uh, it's not an Anabaptist, comes out of, I think, a Reformed tradition, huge fan of Luther. He, I have his updated commentary on Matthew. And in the second edition, he actually changed his whole view of Matthew 5 to come around to a nonviolent and enemy love position. And he, um, which is interesting, because similar to you, just spent a lot of years in the other, on the other side of the argument. And he labels, of the six examples, he labels the first, I think, personal commands. And the last three, he calls them the political commands. And he doesn't mean political in the sense of Republican or Democrat or Democratic, but political in the sense of having to do with, you know, the polis, how we organize as a community. So mm. I, yeah. I think that is a helpful distinction um, that Jesus is dealing with stuff that has implications far outside of just me and my own life. Yeah, I think it was, uh, that's great. That's, I love that distinction. Uh, I think it was, um, oh gosh, who was it? Was it Richard Hayes or somebody said that the, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of, kind of like the New Testament charter for how this new covenant community is supposed to live and act. Like it's not the whole corporate or national versus individual, like that's not really the focus here, Jesus is trying to give a new way of being human, a new way for of, a community. Um, this is how for, you, as a community, a community, live. Yeah. Okay. Two more. Two more. We're running out of time. Two more quick questions. Yeah. How far can you get into a conversation about nonviolence before Bonhoeffer comes up and okay. uh, <laughs> where he becomes especially problematic? As both yeah. the pacifists use yes. him on our side. Yeah, I used him on Sunday, and people were like, "Wait, didn't he?" Yeah, uh, and then the uh, the uh, kill Hitler or something. The critiques, uh, the critics of nonviolence use him on their side. So I'm I'm sure this yeah. is something that uh, you've you've thought about. Uh, yeah. What do you think about um, Bonhoeffer as a famous noted pacifist in his writings and thinkings, but also being implicated with an alleged assassination attempt on Hitler? I know that there's been some new material published in the last three or four years that is now beginning to argue that maybe he wasn't involved or as involved in yeah. in either event. What do we think about Bonhoeffer and his writings? And is it okay for me and John Mark to quote him in our teaching? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I love the Bonhoeffer discussion because I think people kind of throw it out as like a, an intended pushback. And it, I think when you really look at it, it's like, I don't think there's anything really to that's, that's pushing back here on me. I mean, let, let's, so yeah, you, I'm glad you acknowledge that there is a debate among Bonhoeffer scholars, whether or not he was really, you know, kind of a, a main architect or even involved in trying to kill Hitler. Like, a, a, and I haven't waded through all the original evidence, but apparently it, it's not crystal clear. It's, it's in question. Like, yeah. It is in question, but let's just assume that he was part of that plot. If he was, he was tormented by that. He was agonizing over it. And we're talking about Hitler here. Like, the, the person who most Christians wouldn't even, they would get mad at you for even raising a question whether or not we should kill Hitler. Like, that's just like a no-brainer. For Bonhoeffer, it wasn't a no-brainer. It's something he deeply wrestled with. Oh, again, assuming he, this is all kind of, you know, uh, the best reading of the material. But he was wrestling with it. He was agonizing with it. It was something that he probably would have repented for later if he actually succeeded. Right. Well, if, if that was the spirit of evangelical Christians, I would say, yeah. man, well done. Hats off. If we're only willing to use violence against the Hitlers of the world. Then- as a last case scenario, and as <laughs> yeah. we do it, we're begging for the mercy of God. Agonizing, that, that almost exactly. He almost seems to me like the best example of what you do when you're in an impossible situation. Totally. Whether that's Absolutely. the extreme scenario of the attacker yeah. in the middle of the night with your family or yeah. a Hitler. He just right. seems like a bright, shining example of even if at some point you resort to violence, right. you do it and begging he, for the mercy yeah. of God. 
and he's all this is also a perfect example that the, the scenario of either let evil run rampant or you stop evil by violence that simplistic really fictitious yeah, scenario it flight. doesn't exist yeah. because in that scenario they tried to kill hitler it failed and what happened hitler saw that as god god's favor right. upon him and so he cranked up the you know auschwitz even hotter ended up slaughtering way more people in the wake of that success on his part of, of escaping the attempt because he believed God was behind him. So, so, so right is, or wrong, that assassination attempt made it, made the situation worse. Yes, that, that's absolutely. absolutely. And, and so right or wrong, the, the actions of one historical pacifist, whether they are in cooperation or violation of their personal views, aren't necessarily a silver bullet to the nonviolent right. position of Jesus. Yeah, right. either way. It's just, it's just a great question. All right, last question, Preston, and we'll let you go. Uh, this is a great one, um, a more pastoral question. How, and I got this from a number of people, so here it is. Quote, how am I supposed to support my dad, who retired yeah. from the military? Am I mm. supposed to be thankful towards people who served in the military? Well, I just love that question, yeah. love the heart behind it. How, how yeah. would you, from a pastoral kind of, how would you answer that? That's a great question, and and um, you know my dad served in the military, my uncle served in the military, my grandpa. I mean, I come from a mili- long line of military family members. We have many friends who have served, the neighbors, and my uh, e- eager response is, you honor that person. You um, there, there's many many um, noteworthy virtues that go into military service. They are sacrificing their. Their, their lives in many, in many different ways. They are exemplifying courage. The problem is not so much with the individuals that are going to the military. The problem is Christian leaders have created a, a narrative in our Christian subculture that is not only allowing, but pushing people to do that. Like we have so bought into the cultural celebration of military service that of course people would be like, well, why, how, I don't blame my dad for, you know, going into, I don't blame the grandpa or grand, whatever who's, you know, who served in the military and put his life on the line. Like those are courageous virtues. It's the misguided Christian subculture, which stems from the leadership that I think is really where the blame is. So when it comes to individuals, I have no problem saying, you know, obviously not saying I agree with everything they did, but I mean to say that, like, man, I have no problem honoring the many virtues that went into that service. Well, we're out of time. We're going to wrap it up for the day. Preston, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for your hard work on this subject. Thank you for your courage, your thoughtfulness, your boldness. Um, thanks for working out and being such a pro. <laughs> You know, <laughs> thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's great. Uh, you're yeah. listening to the Bridgetown Church podcast. For more content, visit bridgetown.church. See you soon. <laughs>